Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See that? We got it working. All right. Goodable is a news outlet. You probably never heard of them before. If you haven't, I would suggest you download the app. It's pretty encouraging. They claim to do news like nobody else does it. What their focus is, Goodable's focus on their app and on their website, all they do is share good stories. They have this idea, this tagline concerning their news. They say news has become confusing, demoralizing, negative, and divisive. And so as far as they're concerned, they said it's their job to be forthright. It's their job to be people that love the truth, but it's also their job to share and show goodness. They share articles about literacy developing in sort of lesser developed countries, ancient artifacts that they've discovered that help us to see how people live in a time before ours. They share funny Images of dogs and cats on Twitter or funny things that grandparents do with their grandchildren. Goodable's whole focus is to crowd out all of the negativity in our world and in turn give us something good and positive to reflect on. And, you know, that's great. And Christians can learn from things like this, that we do need the truth, but we also need goodness. And that's exactly what God gives us in his word. When you turn your Bible to the book of Isaiah, what you find is a man that tells us that his times were a lot like ours. Now, we read the Bible and we sometimes assume that because we're centuries removed from when those things took place, their world was a lot different. And if you go back to the Old Testament, that's going back even even further. And it's even more challenging for us to connect. But we do need to appreciate that their world was a lot like ours. Isaiah, it said in Isaiah chapter one and verse one that he prophesied or preached during the reign of four different kings, Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah really paints a bleak picture. The people have offered up to God superficial worship. They've been hypocritical in their behavior. And the beautiful vineyard of Israel that God had planted didn't bring forth the fruit that it should. But instead, it brought forth a corrupt and rotten crop. When you get to the section in Isaiah of chapters 14 through 24, it's what some call the oracles to the nations. God's not just upset at Israel, but he's furious with all of the nations because of their worldliness and their corruption. And pretty much from chapter 24 into chapter 39, Isaiah's telling the people, you're going into Babylonian captivity because you've disobeyed, because you haven't lived the way that God wanted you to. And there's nothing to change about it. In Egyptian captivity, God said, let my people go. But in Babylonian captivity, he says, let my people stay. You've earned it in 70 years. It will be your lot. But when you get to Isaiah chapter 40. All the way through the end in chapter 66, Isaiah sings a new song beginning in chapter 40. It starts with these words, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And the rest of the book of Isaiah is this positive note of blend of messianic prophecies and hope of good times to come. The change is so stark and drastic that some skeptical commentators believe a different Isaiah wrote the second half of the book altogether. That's not true, but it is the case that God totally changes his mind toward Israel and decides to view them as in a positive light. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Isaiah 43, because what we encounter in Isaiah 43 is a picture into this new thing that God was doing with Israel, what he planned to do with them when they came home from Babylonian captivity. He was going to change their circumstances and hopefully change their outlook as a result. Now, you may not be familiar with Isaiah 43, or at least you might assume you're not. But as we make our way through the chapter tonight, I think you'll find out that you are. Because what Isaiah does in this chapter is he refers back to passages and things we're very familiar with. He refers back to the patriarchs and to the deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea, the promise that was made to Joshua of God never leaving or abandoning his people. He references Song of Solomon and even the idea of the Redeemer that you find in the book of Ruth. And of course, it's flooded with imagery of the Psalms of God's deliverance. What Isaiah says in chapter 43 is there's a sense in which God's doing something totally new. But if you know God well, God's also doing something very old. 
He's showing himself to be the God he's always been, a God that brings something new and something better. It was read for us a moment ago in chapter 43 and verse 19. God says, I do a new thing. It's a key word in Isaiah. He uses the word new 10 times in this book to emphasize that he's changing things. Israel had sinned and they deserve captivity. But God says, I've got something new in store for you. And what I want to do tonight is look at the blessings of those five new things that God promises to do in Isaiah 43. And then hopefully we'll end by making some New Testament application to us. But what are some of the blessings of something new that God promises to do? Number one, there's new redemption. Isaiah starts out in Isaiah 43 and verse one. Thus says the Lord. He's the God who created Jacob and who fashioned Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. You're my people. I will call you by name. The first thing he says is he's doing something new and that he's redeeming his people. Now, redemption goes back again to the time of Exodus. You remember in Exodus six and verse six, God told Moses, I'm going to redeem you out of the house of bondage with an outstretched arm. Exodus six and verse six. And he did. They sang the song of Moses when they got on the other side of the Red Sea. Exodus 15 and verse 13. God had redeemed them and God had rescued them. But now when they're going into Babylonian captivity, God's going to do this all over again. God says, I'm going to rescue you and redeem you. There's going to be a new redemption. Now, if you look at the verse, look at verse one and notice the imagery, the language that Isaiah uses to describe the close relationship that Israel had with God and God's ownership over them. He says, I formed you and I've created you and I've called you by my name. You're redeemed. God saying to Israel, you belong to me. And because of that, it's personal. And I'm going to make sure, though you deserve slavery, though you deserve bondage, that won't be the final chapter in your story. I'm going to bring you back. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about redemption. What is redemption? Whatever redemption is, Isaiah was hoping, based on what he says in verse one, that it would be good enough news to remove their fears. Notice what he says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. The idea of redemption that Isaiah means to communicate is God was buying back Israel to purchase them for himself. We know the story of Ruth. Ruth chapter two, Boaz steps in. Ruth chapter two and verse 20, Naomi says he's our kinsman redeemer. And that's exactly what he was. What Boaz was for Ruth and Naomi as he rescued them and they would have otherwise been helpless and destitute without him. God saying to Israel, that's exactly what I hope to do for you. I plan to rescue you and redeem you because without me, you'd be completely hopeless and without rescue. The new thing that God promised to do is to redeem and to purchase and buy back Israel, though they didn't deserve it. They deserve captivity because they had disobeyed. But it's who God is. If you look at Isaiah chapter 62, turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 12. God there describes himself as the redeemer. And then he says that these individuals will not be cast out. They're a city not forsaken because God's going to purchase them and bring them back. He cares about them and he wants to bring them back home and he's not through with them. Every credit card you have, every debit card you have has an expiration date on it. And what that expiration date tells us is after that time period, you need another one. If you're going to purchase things with that card, you're going to need another one. It's going to have to be updated because that old one will no longer work. When you read about God redeeming people through the Bible, his ability to do so never expires. He's the same God who always reaches into people's circumstances and draws them out when they couldn't do it for themselves. He's a God of redemption and a God of salvation. And that's the new thing that this generation would experience. Listen, they knew about it from Egypt, but they would experience it themselves, that they were not cast away, that God wasn't through with them. 
Juneteenth has been noted now as a federal holiday. It was established in 2021, celebrated for the first time last year, June 19th, and it commemorates African-Americans being released from slavery in our country. And it's this idea that people that were once in bondage, people that were once shackled are now released. And we ought to have a holiday to celebrate. Hey, you were in chains, but you've been released. You've been set free. You've been redeemed. And what God says to Israel, Psalm 107, verses one and two. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he's redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. God says, I've redeemed you. I've rescued you. And you've got to see yourself that way. Imagine Israel off in Babylonian captivity for 40, for 70 years. And they know they deserve it. They know they've rebelled and disobeyed God and they're off in captivity. And you're reading Isaiah. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus came, but 150 years before the captivity. And Isaiah is saying, God's not through with you. God's going to rescue you and bring you home. It would be hard to believe, but it would still be true. You know, this doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes people, they don't know value when they see it. Sometimes things are sold for cheaper than they should be. There was a family in New York in 2013. They went to a yard sale and they bought a bowl that they thought was just a cheap three dollar bowl. It was a northern New Sung Dynasty bowl worth two million dollars. There was another guy. He went and he brought this sketch. Famous artist has sketched it. He bought it for five dollars. It was also worth two point two million. Warren Hill purchased a set of records for seventy five cents. And when he had them appraised, they were worth twenty five thousand dollars. You see, humans often undervalue things. They often don't appreciate things for what they're truly worth. And what God's saying to Israel in Isaiah 43 is, I won't leave you on the garage sale table. I won't leave you at the auction. I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to redeem you, though you don't deserve it. And, you know, we meet people like this all the time. People that don't think they're worth much. People that think that they deserve to be cast off, that God wants nothing to do with them. And God, isn't he saying the very same things that he's saying here in Isaiah 43 and verse 1 to everybody in the world? Notice the text again. He says, I've created you. Who is that true about? Is that just true about Israel? Well, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 in Psalm 100 and verse 3 says he's crafted and made everybody. He's the Lord God. He's made us, not we ourselves. Hasn't he called everybody? Second Thessalonians 2:14. he calls us by the gospel. And doesn't he want to redeem the entire world? Ephesians one and verse seven and whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What God promised to do for Israel, he wants to do for everybody. Occasionally, you put on somebody else's glasses and it will give you a headache and probably mess up your eyesight. And you know why that's the case, because the prescription is set for who? For them, for their needs, not for yours. God's the only person in the world that when you put on his glasses, your eyesight gets better. When you look in the mirror with the divine glasses of God by faith, you see yourself as you really should. And you see other people the same way. You say, how can that be? His vision is divine. Mine is earthly. He's the only one that can update our vision. And that's exactly what he's trying to do with Israel. He's saying it's about time that you view yourself the same way that I do. You're not trash. You're not cast off. I'm going to redeem you. Now, here's number two. In Isaiah, there's new redemption, but there's also new rescue. Notice Isaiah 43 in verse two. He says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you and the rivers won't overflow you. When you pass through the fire, it won't burn you or the flame. It won't kindle you. Now, redemption and rescue are sort of the same. All redemption involves rescue. Every time you have redemption, you have rescue. But every time you have rescue, you don't have redemption. And you know what? So many people have quit Christianity because they don't know Isaiah 43 in verse two. So many people have never even started to become a Christian because they don't know the principle of Isaiah 43 and verse two. And everybody in the world needs to learn this principle 
because it'll save our souls and help us to retain our faith. What is that principle? It is this, that God's favorite way to deliver his people, his most original way to deliver is not from fire, but often through fire. Notice what he says in Isaiah 43 and verse two. He doesn't say he's going to make a way in his redemption for them to get out of trouble. He says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the fires, I'm going with you. But guess what Israel still had to do? They still had to go through the fire. They still had to go through the waters. We don't like that. I don't like that. I don't want any fire or any water, any floods. Do you? But God says you're going to get them. But you'll get something else. You'll get my presence. Imagine the three Hebrew boys. 150 years after Isaiah wrote these words, you're standing in the fiery furnace. This isn't just a passage. This is real life for them. We're not careful to answer you in this matter, O king. Our God we serve is able to deliver us, but if he won't, we won't bow down or serve your graven image. Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 3, 24 and 25, did we not cast three men in the fire? They said, yes, O king, he says, but I see four. And the one walking with them is like one of the sons of the gods. God didn't deliver them from the flames, but he delivered the flames from hurting them. And that's how God operates. He is a God of rescue who comes in and says, I'm not going to let you be destroyed by this. I'm going to bring you out. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's what he promises them in the days of Isaiah. And that's what he promises us. We would like a problem free life with no issues. God says, I'm doing a new thing. And this new thing, it involves rescue. Now, this isn't really so new when you think about all the ways that God has rescued his people in the past. Would you consider some of the ways that God has rescued people in the past? This first one, he rescues us from a terrible eternal existence. I know you read Genesis chapter three and the natural inclination is to think Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden as a part of their punishment. And it was, but it was also rescue. Because if they eat from the tree of life, you know what that means for you and me? We've got to stay in these bodies, in this condition, in our sins forever. Then being kicked out of the garden was a punishment, but it was also a rescue. God was saying, I don't want you to live forever like this. I want you to live forever, but not in these conditions. I'll provide a way of escape. And the way of escape for them was an exit from earthly existence. But there's also the rescue from the poison of pride. Sure, the Tower of Babel, God scattered the nations. But at the very same time, he's saying, I'm saving you from you. Because if you build this tower, it'll destroy you. The poison of pride will eat away at your soul. And you don't need that. I'm doing this for your ultimate good. Of course, the rescue from the Red Sea. But what about in the period of the judges? The book of Judges, Judges 2, 13 through 16, just gives you the outline of the 21 chapters. Israel sins. They're in servitude to other nations. They cry out to God. He delivers them. He raises up a judge and saves them. And the cycle continues. But you know what God always does? He keeps saving his people. He rescued them from 185,000 Assyrians that stood outside of Hezekiah's palace in Isaiah chapter 37. And of course, everybody in the world benefits from the salvation of Jesus. John saw him coming and pointed and said, John 129, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Isaiah writes and says God's doing a new thing, there's a sense in which this idea of God rescuing people is new, but it's also a sense in which it's very old. What God often does is sees his people in peril, sees his people in trouble, and he rescues us. Now, why does he do it? You would say, why? Why did God rescue Israel time and time again? There's one reason. It's because he loved them. Hold your hand so you can see Isaiah 43 and verse 2 and go to the book right before it. Go to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. At the end of the Song of Solomon, right after the marriage and all of that, the poetic words begin to be exchanged again. And there is a phrase in the Song of Solomon, chapter eight and verse seven, that's almost identical. Surely it's an allusion in the background to what Isaiah says in chapter 43 and verse two, because in the Song of Solomon, chapter eight and verse seven, the poet says love is stronger 
than death. And then he says it's stronger. Many floods can't quench love and the waters can't overwhelm it. That same terminology and that same language is what God says motivates him in Isaiah 43 and verse two. When you pass through the floods, they won't overwhelm you. Why won't they? Because God's love is stronger than the fires and the floods. And that's what we need to appreciate. One of the new things that God's doing in Isaiah 43 is he's promising to rescue his people. When we lived in Florida, when Nadia was a lot younger, we went to the YMCA and she has swimming lessons. They didn't help much because we're still struggling with the swimming, but she did have the lessons. But there was a catch to these lessons. If your child took these lessons, a parent had to be there every class and you had to get in the water with them. No matter what, every class you had to be there. You were doing the drills with them and all that. Now, you all weren't here. You were in Kentucky. You weren't there. But how many times do you think? How many times do you think in the course of those swimming lessons, I let Nadia fall to the bottom of the pool and scrape her face on the on the bottom of the floor? How many times do you think I let her drown or suffer? You would say that wasn't the case. You weren't there, but you know for certain it wasn't because I'm her father. It's my responsibility to protect her and love her as best I can. And I'm fleshly and frail. But do you really think that the God of heaven is going to let you scrape your face across the bottom of life's surface? And let you drown and suffer. Isaiah saying he's not that kind of God. That's not who he is. When you pass through the waters, I'm going with you. When you go through the floods, I'm going too. there's a sense in which God is saying to Israel in Isaiah 43. When you go to Babylonian captivity, I'm going to Babylonian captivity. And it's not God's desire for any of us to hear these passages and say about our current circumstances. I will get through this. God saying correction. We will get through this. I'm your God. I uphold you with my right hand. I will help you. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. The new thing God was doing was rescuing Israel. Listen, it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to experience it. They read their whole lives. God did this in Egypt. Those were our great, 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 great grandparents. But now it was them. It's like the people in the days of the Samaritan woman. She ran back into town and said, behold, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus spent some time in Samaria and everything changed. The people said in John four and verse 42, now we believe not because of what you say, but we've heard for ourselves and we believe he's the savior who's come into the world. What does God promise to do? He promises to provide new rescue. We're going to go through the fire, but it's not. I know when we think about fire, the first thing we think about is danger. It's hard to come up to a fire and to view it as harmless. But that's exactly how God changes things. He changes our circumstances in such a way that things that will once destroy us are now vanquished of their power. And the new thing that God does in the book of Isaiah is he provides a way of a new way of rescue. But number three, there's a new way of recognition. If Israel did anything, if you know anything about the Old Testament, what you know is that Israel was drunk with idolatry. It starts early on in their history. In Exodus chapter 32, Aaron, you remember, he builds the golden calf and the people are down there partying and playing. And when Moses comes down, it says the people rose up to eat and drink and they sat down to play. That's all they ever did was practice idolatry and wickedness. But when they go to Babylonian captivity and you can check this in the New Testament, Israel never struggles with idolatry again. Listen, when Jesus comes in the Gospels, Israel has a lot of problems, but one of their problems is not idolatry. The Babylonian captivity cured them. It fixed them. No more idols in their history. God changed them as a result. And Isaiah 43, 5 through 15 is about the new way they would be able to see God. He would be the same God, but he would be different to them because now they would see him brand new. In C.S. Lewis's book in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, Pris Caspian, the young girl Lucy comes up to Aslan, who's the lion. And in the books, in the series, Aslan represents the Christ figure, the hero in the books. And on one occasion, Lucy says to Aslan, Aslan, I haven't seen you in a long time. You surely have gotten bigger. And he says, no, I haven't. That's not true at all. He says, sweetheart, you've gotten older. 
and every year that you get older, I will appear bigger and bigger to you. And you know it's the same way with us and God. Psalm 143 and verse 5, God doesn't change, but every year we behold him, it appears that he's bigger and more glorious and more grand. But the reality is he's the same God. Notice what Isaiah says in chapter 43 about the new recognition that his people would experience. In verse 5 and 6 and in verse 9, he's going to bring all of the nations into his presence. They'll finally see him as the God, not only of Israel, but of all the nations. In verse 7, he's the God who created everyone for his own glory. In Isaiah 43 and verse 8, he's the one that will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Though they have those things, they're not using them. And God says, I'm going to change it. In Isaiah 43, 9 and 10, he's the God that knows the future just like we know the present. He knows everything. He doesn't need anybody to update him. In verse 11 and 12, Isaiah says you're going to find him new and different in such a way that he sets things in motion and nobody can turn his hand back. More than that, in verse 14, he's going to deal with Babylon and the punishment that they deserve. And finally, in verse 15, he's your Lord. He's your God. He's the Holy One of Israel and your true king. You see, Isaiah says you're going to see something brand new. He's the same God, but he's new to you. Isn't it true that there are times when we really don't see God as clearly as we should until we go through things? Wouldn't you agree that there have been things in your life that have given you a wake up call? God's always been the same God. He doesn't change. But occasionally I I hate that it's this way. But the reality is there are times in which things happen in our lives that reorient us with God, though he should be known to every one of us. It's just not that way. When Israel came back from Babylonian captivity, Isaiah is saying you're going to recognize God to be able to do things and to serve and operate in your life in ways you have previously ignored. I guess in every family, there's a door locker. I don't know who it is in your family, but as soon as they go outside, they lock the door and you go outside to check the mail or you go outside to get something out of the car. You come back to the door. What happens? The door is locked. You knock on the door, open up. They're on the other side. They say, who is it? You say me. Who is me? You just were there. And God's knocking on the door of people's hearts. And isn't it a shame that God sometimes has to show ID to get into the very hearts that he created? Somebody says, God's knocking on the outside. Who is it? God says, it's me. Who is me? And God says, you don't know who I am? To whom then will you liken me? And shall I be made equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and behold, who's created all these things that bring out their host by number, that he is strong in might, not one fails. Isaiah 40, 25 through 31, he says, even the youth will faint and the young men will utterly fall. Those that wait on the Lord. They'll renew their strength as eagles. They'll run and not be weary, walk and not faint. God says, I'm your God. Don't you recognize me? And they would. They'd see him brand new. And in our lives, God gives us this opportunity. He says, come to the text and see me afresh. Welcome me into your life and let me operate and live within you as I've always desired to. But you've got to change your ways. There's a new recognition, not because he's a different God, but because we hopefully become different people. When they come home from Babylonian captivity, their eyesight should be different. Their vision of who God is should be changed. Just think about before you were baptized. God was who he always had been. The Bible had always taught the very same truths. But, you know, once you became a Christian, you saw things differently and you see them differently now. And there are a lot of people in the world. They don't have that vision. And what they need from us is for us to help them see Help them to see God as he truly is, to see him operating in their lives and wanting to save them and redeem them and buy them back to change their vision, to change their recognition. Look at Second Timothy, chapter two, Second Timothy, chapter two. And notice verse twenty four down through verse twenty six. Paul says this is really the responsibility of servants of the Lord. 
The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, able to teach, patient and meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If perhaps God would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Paul says people are trapped and they need our help. In second Corinthians four, three and four, he says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel. Believe and be saved. The people in Isaiah's day were going to see a new thing, a new recognition and see God as he truly was with their idols removed. And we need the same thing. How many idols have you trusted in that have disappointed you? How many things have we substituted for God, hoping that they would fulfill us? But ultimately, they've always let us down. In the days of Jeremiah, he says it this way. My people have committed two evils. The first evil, he says, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. God says, will you stop choosing other things instead of me and just receive me? I'm the one you need. I'm the one that's come to fulfill you and nothing else will do. And after Babylonian captivity, Israel will get it. There really is no other competition. If you look at Isaiah 43 and verse 11, God says, I'm your savior. There is no other. There's no competition. God says, that's what I've come to do. Here's number four. There's a new road to travel. In verse 16 and verse 19, Isaiah says he's making a way. He makes a way in the sea and then he makes a way in the desert for these folks. It's one of Isaiah's favorite images. You could call him the interstate prophet because he uses the word highway more than anybody else. He uses it in Isaiah 11:16, Isaiah 35 in verse three, Isaiah 40 in verse three, Isaiah 35 in verse eight. He uses it over and over again. God's opening up this new highway, this new way to travel and come to him. And what does Jesus say about himself when he shows up in John 14 and verse six? I am the what? He's the way, the truth and the life. When Isaiah says God's making a new highway, he doesn't mean really new interstate. He's making a new pathway to God. And you know what that path is or who that path is? It's Jesus Christ. He's making something totally new for them. And he says in verse 18, forget the former things. While knowing about the deliverance from Egypt would have been helpful, they needed to forget the former things and think about what God's doing in their lives right now. This is the posture for disciples of Jesus Christ. A healthy knowledge of the past is great, but the Christian life is best lived facing forward. He says in verse 18, forget the former things. And instead, in verse 19, God's doing a new thing with you. He's making a new way for you to travel. And, you know, sometimes when God wants to direct our way, we can't believe it. It seems too good to be true. We're challenged by it. And we like our way better because it's more familiar to us. But we need to accept his way. Proverbs three, five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Listen, whenever the Bible says don't do something, it's because that's probably our natural inclination to do. We shouldn't just skirt over those parts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. We will spend most of our lives trying to do that very thing. And Solomon says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. What's going to be the path? He's the path. He's the way. Even if you can't see the way, just trust him. Just follow where he's leading because he's going in the right direction. Look at first Corinthians chapter two. And notice what Paul says about the new redemption that's found in Jesus. And I know this passage is sometimes used to talk about heaven, and that's fine. But what Paul's talking about is the new way that God promises to save through Jesus and through the gospel. And it's so unbelievable that people can't conceive of it. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, I has not seen, 
nor his ear heard the things which God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit. That's a quotation from Isaiah 64 and verse four. It's an allusion back to what God promised to do in the days of Isaiah as he made this new way to travel, a new way to live. God's saying to everybody, you need a new way. I know you think you've got things down pat, but you need a new way. You say, well, listen, I've been raising my kids for a long time. God's saying, listen, you really need a new way of doing this. You've got to do it my way. I know you think, well, I know human nature. And God's saying, no, you've got to do it my way. I don't know how long you've been on your job. You say, well, look, I've been doing this job for so long. I don't even have to look. I can do everything on my job without blinking. And God's saying, listen, when you go to work tomorrow, I'm telling you, you need a new way. Paul says as much in Colossians 3, 23 to 25. He says nobody has ever done the best they could do on their job until they realize they work for God and not for men. Sometimes people say to preachers, well, do you do just preaching work or do you do secular work? According to Paul, there's no such thing as secular work. Everybody that works right works for God. Everybody. And you need to see a new way in your marriage. Paul says God's saying you need a new way. You need to do things new and different. You need to see things the way that I want you to see them. You've got to interact with people in a new way, different because you're a new creature. Second Corinthians 517. You see, when Israel came back from Babylonian captivity, they were going to be in the same territory, the same land that they had always been in. And the temptation for them would be to go back to living and doing things in the way that was comfortable for them. But we need to remember that uncomfortable doesn't equal unscriptural. Just because it makes us uncomfortable, just because it unsettles us, doesn't mean it's not God's way. God's not in the business of making us comfortable. He's in the business of converting us and changing us to his goodness and his glory. Now, here's number five, and probably the most important for Israel and for us. There's going to be a new record. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, he says, I even I am he who blot out your transgressions for my own name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. God promises to forgive them and give them a brand new record. The things they had done, they wouldn't be remembered anymore. God promises to forgive their sins. But notice why God promises to do it. He says, I even I am he who forgive you, who blot out your transgressions for what purpose? For my own name's sake. It wasn't because Israel deserved it. If you read verse 22 down through verse 24, they didn't bring money like they should have. They didn't bring the sacrifices. They did nothing to deserve God's forgiveness. But God says, you know what? I'm going to step in and give you the forgiveness you didn't know you needed. I'm going to provide for you a brand new record and wipe your slate clean. Go back to Isaiah chapter one, because this is how Isaiah starts the book, even though this section of Isaiah is the dark section. It's the negative section. God was promising the redemption that he says in verse 25 of chapter 43 as early as the first chapter. We sing this song. It's not a New Testament idea or concept or it's elaborated on in the new, but it comes from Isaiah one and verse 18. Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as snow, though they be red like crimson, they'll be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. Isaiah 118, God's saying, I want to forgive you and give you a new record. But you've got to let me. I blot out your transgressions for my own name's sake. It's not the case that under the old covenant, there was no forgiveness. There was no hope and the sins were just kind of rolled forward. No, God was always forgiving sins. And every sin that's ever been forgiven has been forgiven based on what Jesus did on the cross. The sacrifices were always accepted by God in view of the ultimate sacrifice of what Jesus was going to accomplish. But read the book of Leviticus, read chapter four and chapter five and see if God says anything about rolling anybody's sins forward. It's not there. What God says is you do the sacrifice and it will be forgiven. He promised. And now here he reminds them. But it's not just here. It's throughout the Old Testament. He cast their sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7 and verse 19. 
He cast their sins behind his back. Isaiah 38 and verse 17. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 verses 12 through 14. Forgiven, 2 Samuel 12, 13. It's new, but in a sense, it's who God's always been. And if you mark in your Bible or write in your Bible or you put up verses on your fridge or whatever, every one of us should commit to memory Ezra 9:13 because it's true for everybody who's ever lived. Ezra says in Ezra 9:13, we have been punished less than our sins deserve. And everybody ought to give a hearty amen to that because it's true. We've been punished less than our sins deserve. We deserve death and eternal separation. But instead, God gives eternal reconciliation. He says, you and I can be friends again, though I was your enemy and I'll remember your sins no more. We've all done things we're ashamed of, things we said we were going to stop doing, things we fought through. And sometimes we say, I just can't forget what I've done. I can't I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. And I can't believe I did that for that amount of time, for that long. And God says, but I've forgiven you and I've forgotten it. Somebody says, I can't do that. We know you can't. God knows I can't. But God can. He has and he will. But not just for us. God wants to do this for everybody in the world. Rather than blot Israel out, God says, I'll blot out your sins. Acts 3 and verse 19. Repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God was doing a new thing for Israel and that he was going to give them a brand new record. You read in Zechariah chapter 3. And there the high priest Joshua stands and he's in those soiled garments. And the Satan, the adversary says, that's who he is. Look at him. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, take that turban off of him and put on new clothes. Give him a new outlet outlook on life. Rebuke the Satan. And he says, you're clean and that's how you stand. And you might see yourself and you know about your sins more than you know about anybody else's. And so sometimes it's harder for us to forgive ourselves. But God says, guess what? I'm the final juror. I'm the one with the divine gavel. And if I pronounced you forgiven, you are forgiven, whether you feel like it or not, because there's a brand new record. The promises in Isaiah 43 were never meant to just stay in Isaiah for Old Testament Israel. In the end, they all point forward to the New Testament. To a time when Jesus would sit at a table with his disciples and hold up a cup and say, this blood is the new covenant. My blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's the way, John 14 and verse 6, and he would provide that highway of holiness and that way of redemption for everybody in the world to have their sins forgiven. He would become the bruised one so that we could be let go, though we deserve to be bruised by God. And he could say about us, I'm doing a new thing. You're a new people. Colossians 3 and verse 10. I'll make a new name for you. Revelation 21 and verse five. Behold, the bride of the lamb. John promises that God's doing something new. And the only thing he asked for us to do is to keep the new commandment. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. The keeping of that commandment is the keeping of the whole law. And to do that means we'll tell the truth when he wants us to. We'll help other individuals to see themselves as in need of redemption and need of the new record that God extends to everybody in the world. And right in the heart of Isaiah is the answer to the problem. Ten chapters away from chapter 43 is Isaiah 53, where Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it's there that we figure out how God's going to give them everything he promised here, because there would be one that would be bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace falls upon him. And though he's God's closest friend and ally, he becomes God's enemy. So we, God's enemies, can become his closest friends and allies. And God says, I'm doing something brand new and all the world's invited.
Nick's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. And maybe tonight somebody needs that new record that God promises in the book of Isaiah. He says, I blot out your transgressions for my own name's sake. God loves us enough that he can't stand to see us soiled in sin. And so he says, I'll do it for my own name's sake. How's he going to do it? He'll suffer for our sins. And if you believe that and you're ready to turn from your sins and obey the gospel, you can be baptized in water to have your sins forgiven. And he's promised to redeem you when you've done so. If you need the prayers of the church, if we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.